that when mom and dad leave, they'll come back. In a fallen world, though, sadly, sometimes one of the parents leaves and doesn't come back. And for children of broken homes, that makes trusting other people very hard. And it can make trusting Jesus hard, too. But that doesn't mean Jesus is not worthy of our trust. This morning in John 14, we'll see Jesus preparing his disciples for his own departure. He's already told them he's leaving. And that where he's going, they're not yet able to follow. He can tell their hearts are rattled by the news that he's leaving them. And so here in John 14, verses 1 to 14, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Jesus gives them three comforts. Three comforts. And John's point in showing us this today is to teach us that faith seeks three comforts from Jesus in his absence. Faith seeks three comforts from Jesus in his absence. So follow along with me as I read for us John 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going? Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So faith seeks three comforts from Jesus in his absence. First, faith seeks hope in Jesus' return. Faith seeks hope in Jesus' return. Jesus has just been telling them that he's about to leave them. They will seek him, but where he's going, they're not able to follow, at least not yet. He's also just predicted that one of them will betray him and that Peter will deny him. Three times. And this is all very unsettling to them. And Jesus knows that. So he comforts them. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus, you can tell, cares about the heart of his followers. He cares about them. He cares that his physical absence is going to make them, and maybe us, anxious. So he comforts us by telling us to trust in God and in himself. Rely on God. Leave it to Christ. Leave it to me, he says, to care for all that worries you in my absence. We should also recognize that the word your there 
in verse 1 is plural. And yet the word heart is singular. He's addressing them as a group, as if they have one corporate heart that's feeling the same thing about his absence, about his impending departure from them. He wants them to realize they all have the same anxiety about his absence. And he wants them to realize they're all in this together. But how do we not let our heart be troubled? Especially when the forces of evil and chaos and uncertainty seem to be pressing in all around us. All I have to do is watch the news, read the internet. It's easy for our heart to be troubled today. Everything seems to be spinning out of control. Jesus seems to be so far away. So how do we not let our heart be troubled? Well, Jesus says, it's by trusting God the Father and trusting Jesus the Son. Rely on Him. Count on Him. Depend on Him. Leave it to Him. Refer it all to Him in prayer. Be certain about His goodness and power to do everything you don't know how to do or that you don't even know needs to be done. The key to stability in the Christian life, the key to be stable enough in yourself so that other people can learn from your stability is trusting God and trusting Jesus. That's it. Jesus is still in control and therefore he calls us to stabilize our own hearts by trusting his sovereignty and his goodness through it all. So Christian, when it looks like the cause of Christ is failing, you need to trust him. He's in control. When you struggle with anxiety over things that you know are out of your control, you should trust Jesus. He is in control. When it sounds like the churches are going to lose and are losing, trust Jesus. Jesus has already won. When it feels like your own heart is breaking, you trust Jesus with your sorrow and despair because his body was broken for you so that you wouldn't have to be anxious over everything that breaks your heart. When your mind is confused about what to believe, you trust Jesus because Jesus is not confused about everything that confuses you. And Jesus wants you to trust him now. That's why we sang that song. Only trust him now. That song was preaching to you. We were all preaching to each other in that song. Trust Jesus. And he wants you to trust him now by hoping in the future that he has secured for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You see how he is directing their perspective from focusing on everything that troubles them now to everything that he's preparing for them, certainly in the future. They've been asking him, where are you going? How could you possibly be leaving us? And here he answers them. He is going to his father's house, to heaven, and the reason he's going there is to prepare a place for them. That's comforting. He wants you to know that. And there's plenty of room there for everyone who trusts Jesus. 
Of course, that's just the kind of place they're in now, a room in a house, sharing a meal, savoring these moments. It's a great way for him to talk to them. They don't want that moment to end. You ever been over at somebody's house in the church? You're having such good fellowship with them. You think, I don't want this to end. I don't even want to go home. I mean, I know I should go home. It's probably awkward to say the night, but I don't want this to end. That's how they're feeling. He knows it. And he's unsettling their hearts by saying, look, guys, this is going to be over quickly. But he's telling them, there's going to come a time when it's never going to end. You're never going to have to leave that house. We have to leave this house, but we're never going to leave that house. And I'm preparing it for you. And that's the whole reason I'm leaving, is to prepare that house. So the antidote to a troubled heart is a trusting heart. A heart that trusts Jesus is now preparing a place for all those who trust him. That your anxieties about Jesus' absence are not going to last forever because his absence isn't going to last forever. The idea of Jesus preparing a place for us, though, isn't just unique to this part of Scripture. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 34, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Christian, that's talking about you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.9, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. All this God has prepared for those who love him. Hebrews 11.16, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Modern translation, if your greatest hope is to retire with enough money that you don't run out of it, you are cheating yourself. God is preparing for you a city. Jesus is preparing for you a room in heaven. I don't know what that looks like. I don't think Paul knows what that looks like. He said, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has ever imagined or comprehended, that's what Jesus is preparing for us here in John 14. That's what he's talking about. So if you ask me, well, what does that look like? Does everybody have a mansion in heaven? I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like. But the way God and Jesus talk about it, it's better than mansions. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be great, and it's never going to end. And what's great about it is that Jesus is going to be there. And he's going to recognize you when you get there, if you've been trusting him. And he's going to walk you right into it. And he's going to show you, look at what I've been doing. And he talks about it. The image he uses is his father's house. You ever have a rich friend with a rich dad and he's really kind and nice? That friend invites you over? You're like, whoa, this is where you live. That's what heaven is going to be like. A home. Maybe you had a rich friend with a really happy home life and you didn't have a happy home life and you go there and you spend the night there you think man I wish my life were like this I wish my family were like this I wish my siblings were like this I wish my dad were like this I wish my brother were like this a home family fellowship familiarity security righteousness Rest, blessing in abundance. Jesus is preparing all of it for us. So that in the words of J.C. Ryle, when we arrive there, we shall not be in a strange land, 
we shall find we were known and thought of before we arrived. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> when you get to heaven, people are going to recognize you. Jesus is going to recognize you. He's not going to be like, well, how'd you get here? This isn't for you. No. He's going to say your name. He's going to welcome you with open arms. He's going to smile at you. He's going to say, I've been waiting for you. I've been getting ready for you. Do you ever think about that? Has that ever crossed your mind? To just spend a little time hoping and thinking about that. That's coming if you trust in Christ. That's real. Jesus tells you, I want you to believe that. Because that's going to help you persevere. And this part of what we committed to in our church covenant, we will encourage one another towards the eternal hope to which we have been called. When's the last time you talked to another member of this church about hoping in this? This is wonderful. This is, to neglect this is like a really rich family being afraid to talk about finances because they haven't opened their statements in years. I don't know what's in there. I don't know what my investment accounts hold. And I'm a little afraid to think about it. Well, if you just open them, you would know you are stinking filthy rich. Yeah. Right. Open your Bible. There's a world of hope, a literal world of hope. That Jesus wants you to take advantage of and to trust and believe. But how's all this going to take place? Jesus has already hinted at it twice. In 1227, he had said, Now is my soul troubled. You see this? He's telling you, Let not your heart be troubled. But his soul is already being troubled. 1227, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, like the psalmist said in Psalm 6 that he's quoting there. But for this reason I came to this hour, to be troubled, to not be saved from this hour, so that I could say to them, let not your heart be troubled. I will be troubled for you. My heart will be troubled, so that yours doesn't have to be. John told us that Jesus, 1321, Jesus was troubled in his spirit when he told them that one of them would betray him. Jesus' heart was troubled so that our heart would not have to be troubled. Jesus let his own heart be Deeply troubled by the hour of darkness, the experience of the cross, the endurance of all of God's curse for all of the sins of all those who would ever trust in him for eternal life. You talk about a troubled soul under the wrath of almighty God for all of our sins on a Roman cross. Jesus did not ask God to save him from that trouble. He endured that trouble so that he could save us from being troubled. Friends, this is the simplicity of the gospel. God is our holy creator, our righteous judge. He created us to know him, to love him, to serve him forever. But we rebelled against that law and against even his love. We wanted to define right and wrong for ourselves out from under God's loving and protective authority. That's what it meant for us to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want the knowledge of good and evil out from under God's authority. I want to decide what's good and evil for me. I want to discover that for myself. But we were never able to digest 
that knowledge. We still don't know what to do with it. Our hearts don't know what to do with the knowledge of good and evil. Our spiritual system cannot process it. We've never known what to do with it. And our refusal to trust God with that knowledge, our rebellion against His law and love, drew down God's righteous anger and curse in the penalty of death and damnation in hell for all eternity. But that is why God sent Jesus so that he might live the sinless life that we should have lived and were not willing to live. And then he died the death we deserve to die for our sins in our place. He was troubled for us so that we could be freed from trouble in eternity. And even now, as we trust in Christ, and if we trust in Jesus' righteousness to be credited to our account, and His blood to atone for our sins, if we turn from our sins and our self-made righteousness, we can be saved from both the power and the penalty of our sins. That's the gospel. Now, why did Jesus do all this? Why would Jesus do this? Look there in verse 3. I will come and receive you, not just to the place that I'm preparing for you, not just to the room. I will receive you to myself in order that where I am, you might be also. That's why Jesus lived. That's why Jesus died. That's why Jesus rose from the dead. And that is why he has ascended into heaven And that is why he is preparing a place for us right now so that we can be where he is always. Look, if you're you're a parent and you have a rebellious teenager, right? And somehow they run away or they're just rejecting your authority and there's a rift in your relationship together. You want that teenager to come home. But what you mean by coming home isn't just... Would you just live in the same place with us? That's a totally superficial way of thinking about what you mean. By, won't you just come home? You want to receive that teenager to yourself, to your heart. This is what Jesus is saying. If I leave, and I am leaving, I will come back and I will get you. And I will bring you, not just to some place of wonder that you can enjoy independently of me. I will bring you to myself. I will bring you to myself. I will bring you to me so that I can bring you to God, the one you've offended, and we can all live together in a reconciled way forever. That's what he wants. That's what he's doing now. That's why he left. Only to come back to get you and to prepare a place for you in the meantime. And Christian, that is why you should not let your heart be troubled. That's why you shouldn't be anxious about anything. That's why you don't, you don't need to go to some counselor for anxiety. You need to trust in Jesus to not Be anxious for everything that does make you anxious. You take that to Jesus directly. You don't need some pseudo-priest to talk it out with. You need to talk to Jesus about it. And you need to listen to what Jesus has already told you in his word. You have that direct, not indirect. Use it. He's inviting you to himself. Go to him about it. And that counts for you whether you're 13 or 9 or 7 or whether you're 97. He wants you to come to him. And he's telling you, listen to me tell you, don't let your heart be troubled. Because 
The very reason Jesus left to prepare a place for us implies that he will come back to get us and bring us to himself and to that place if we are turning from our sins and from our self-reliance to trust in him for right standing with God. Christian Jesus is not wasting his time in making these preparations. He will come and get us to take us there with him. And nothing in this world can jeopardize what Jesus is preparing for us in the world to come. Look, this life is short. It's not worth living for. You, you shouldn't be hoping in some pot of gold at the end of this life. If that's your hope, you're going to be sorely disappointed, even if you get the pot of gold. There's a lot of people who have that pot of gold, and they're miserable. No one is miserable in heaven. So hope in heaven. Stop hoping in stuff and money and some future in this life that you think is going to be better than what you've got now. Maybe it'll be better. But it's not worth hoping. And yet what Jesus wants us to look forward to again is not merely the place, but him. He will come again and receive us not just into his father's house, but to himself. This is personal to Jesus. He takes you personally. He takes saving you personally. He's looking forward to being with you and me and us all together personally. He wants to take you not into his place, but to himself. And this is the goal of the gospel according to Jesus. This is why he died and rose and ascended. In order that where I am you also might be. How kind is that? How tender is that? I want you to be where I am. That's how Jesus thinks about you. That's what Jesus plans for you. His plan for you is reconciliation, fellowship, intimacy, the corporate togetherness of God's people with Jesus in the Father's house through Jesus' death for our sins, resurrection from the dead, and ascension to God's right hand. Now, there are a lot of other so-called gospels on offer today. Lots of other messages that people want churches to preach to them. Christian nationalism is not the gospel. It's not worth hoping it. The Christians somehow get in power and everybody somehow agrees that, okay, we should put Jesus Christ as Lord in our Constitution. It's not going to help things. It's not something to hope in. Private prosperity, not the gospel. Nothing in this world is the gospel. The gospel is that where Jesus is, there we might be with him. The gospel is what gets me there. That is Jesus' goal in living and dying and rising to bring us to God and to himself. In verse 4, Jesus tells them and us, you know the way to where I am going. You know the way. Clearly, though, from what follows, they know something that they themselves don't think they know. They don't know that they know what Jesus is telling them they know. You know the way. See, the disciples are seeking a stability and knowledge. They don't realize that they already have by faith in Jesus. That leads us to our second point. Faith seeks knowledge of Jesus' Father in Jesus. Faith seeks Knowledge of Jesus' Father in Jesus. Verses 5 through 11. So Jesus just said, you know the way to where I am going. But Thomas objects, how could we possibly know the way? How are we even able to know the way? If you're a philosopher, that's an epistemic question. That's a question of how do you know what you know? How am I possibly able even to know where, the way that you're going if you haven't even told us the where? And I just, I just went to a wedding that was three hours away yesterday. It was a great wedding. I didn't know where it was. I had to have my wife tell me, where are we going? 
in order to know the way there. It just seems reasonable, right? I mean, Thomas seems eminently reasonable here. <laughs> like Jesus, I'm only human, right? <laughs> like I can't know the way until you tell me the where. When my daughter was little, if she didn't know the answer to a question, she would just say, I can't know that. Not I don't know that, I, I can't know that. I'm not able to know that. And that's what Thomas is saying here. We, we can't know the way if we don't know the where. There's no way to know the way if we don't know the where. But Jesus says in verse 6, you do know the way because you know me. You know me. I am the way and the truth and the life. You know me, Jesus says. That's how you know the way to get to where I'm going. Personal reliance on me is the way to get to the Father's house. Personal relationship to me, with me. That's how you, how you get there. That's the way to where I am. So I can ask a cab driver directions from Union Station to the museum campus downtown. I can listen and write those directions down and get there myself. Or, or since I am directionally challenged, I can get in the cab and trust the cabbie just to take me there. Just get me there. Now, you see what just happened? Instead of the cabbie telling me how to get there or the way there, the cabbie becomes my way, right? Getting in the cab and trusting that cab driver is my way there. The cab driver is my way. He doesn't just know the way. He does know the way. But he is, he becomes my way. Similarly, we rely on Jesus not just to tell us the way, but to be our way, to take us there himself. In fact, he himself is the way, not just a way. Like, look, I could take a water taxi or I could take some other way of getting to the museum campus from Union Station. There's lots of cabs. But there's only one way to get to the Father, and that's Jesus. And you can't just take down directions from him. You have to get in his vehicle. You have to get into him. You have to be in Christ to get to heaven. He is the way. And he's the only way anyone needs. He's the only way there is. Obedience to God's law is not the way. That's not a way to get to heaven. Because it's too steep. That way is too steep. You start walking the way of the law, and pretty soon, it's so uphill, it's too much cardio for your heart. Your heart's going to pump so hard... It's going to pump itself to death trying to climb the mountain of the law to get to heaven. You can't do that. Being consistent with my personal values or true to my own cut and paste do-it-yourself spirituality is not the way. You're not going to get to heaven and be like, well, God, I didn't exactly believe in Jesus, but, I mean, I did kind of create my own... Paulism theology, and I was really consistent with that, and I was so genuine. I mean, I really meant it. And God's going to say to me, depart from me, I never knew you, if that's what I go to him with. I told you that Jesus was the only way. Jesus told you, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The way. Jesus is the way to God because he is the truth of God in the flesh, the eternal word of God. He is the self-expression of God, the truth of God incarnate. And he is the life of God who has God's life in himself because he is the second person of the Trinity. And he gives that eternal life to whoever he pleases. That's why he's the way, because he is the truth and because he is the life. He is the full deity 
in full humanity in his personhood, in the perfect obedience of his life, in the substitute sacrifice of his death, his physical resurrection from the dead, he is the only way that leads to the Father because of those things. He is the way in the sense that he is the only mediator between God and mankind, the only one who can personally and safely conduct us to heaven. You know, in, in, in wartime, there is often an agreement made, I will give you safe passage here. There will be a, an armistice, a, a, a ceasefire, and this sanctioned group will walk this vulnerable group across a divide across a militarized zone safely. Only Jesus can do that for you. Only Jesus. And he is the only one who can safely conduct us to heaven and then introduce us to God as his own friend and brother or sister when we get there. He is the only way because he is the truth of God's character, compassion, and expectations for us in human form. He is the dynamic principle of life in himself who has life in himself and energizes us to walk in his way and feed on his truth. This is the knowledge that our faith seeks in Jesus. The way to God, the truth of God, and the life of God all in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says clearly, no one comes to the Father except through me. So he says it positively, I am the way. And now negatively, no one comes to the Father except through me. He could not be more clear. Jesus is not a religious pluralist, and you should not try to co-opt him as if he is. He is not. He doesn't believe that all different religions are just different ways to the same God. Jesus does not believe that, and he doesn't want you to believe that. And if you think Jesus believes that, he's telling you otherwise right here. You cannot co-opt Jesus for pluralism. No one in the world can approach God the Father or enjoy eternal relationship with him apart from a relationship of personal reliance in Christ. Yet anyone, anyone in the world can approach God the Father by faith in Jesus. Again, the reason is that no one else embodies the truth of God like Jesus does. He is the word, the message, the self-expression of God, and no one else has life in himself to share with others like Jesus has. And he proved it in his resurrection from the dead. In fact, once you know Jesus, you know the Father because the Father and the Son are one in character, in essence, in divinity, in glory, and in purpose. That's why Jesus said in verse 7, If you have known me, you, will, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. If you know Jesus... If you know Jesus, you know God better than you think you know him. Christian, do you see here how Thomas was seeking a knowledge of God the Father that he didn't realize he already had because he knew Jesus? And that goes for you too. If you know Jesus, if you know and trust Jesus, then you know what you need to know to be reconciled to God and have a right understanding of who God is and what he expects of you and how you can be reconciled to him and how you can be saved by him on the last day. And maybe you don't know some parts of your Bible very well. Maybe you feel simple-minded. Maybe you've been poorly taught by other churches in the past. Maybe you're a beginner in Christian knowledge. Maybe just starting out. That's okay. Ask yourself, do you know Jesus as God's son? Do you know Jesus as your creator and your savior, king of God's kingdom, friend of sinners? Is Jesus all of your righteousness? Is Jesus your hope in life and death like we sing? Is Jesus your only way to the Father? Is he the truth of God incarnate for you? Is he your life? Has he awakened you from being dead to your sins so that you are now alive and sensitive and responsive to the things of God in Christ? If you can say yes to those questions, then you are on the way to the Father's house. 
because you are in Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. You are his forevermore, and he will conduct you to glory. It's not that you don't have more to learn. You probably have lots to learn. So do I. The apostles certainly had way more to learn. But they already knew enough to follow Jesus when it was time because they knew Jesus himself. So they could follow from there. And you can too. It's okay if you are young in Christ. If you know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then he will teach you all of the things that you need to know in order to follow him so that you can be with him where he is. That's why he puts you in a local church like this one, to learn those things together with us. So simple Christian, scared Christian, if you know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then your faith is seeking a knowledge that you don't realize you already have because you know Jesus. You know the way. Jesus is the way. You know the truth. He is the truth. You know eternal life. Jesus is the life. So if you're scared because you don't know as much as other Christians know, then know this. You know Jesus. And Jesus knows you. And that is what you need to know in order to know anything else. Take it from J.C. Ryle. All believers, he says, are apt to undervalue the work of the Spirit in their own souls and to fancy or assume that they know nothing because they do not know everything. Many true Christians are thought more of in heaven while they live than they think of themselves and will find it out to their surprise at the last day. Many go mourning all the way to heaven themselves and will find it out to their surprise. They fancy they will miss the way altogether and yet they have hearts with which God is well pleased. That's many of you. And Ralph said again, when our Lord says, I am the truth, he means the root of all knowledge is to know me, Jesus. I am the true Messiah to whom all revelation points, the truth of which the Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices were a figure and shadow. He that really knows me knows enough to take him safe to heaven, though he may not know many things and may be troubled at his own ignorance. That's comforting. There's a lot of things that we don't know. But it's okay. Jesus knows all those things. And if we know him, we know enough. It's not that we don't have more to learn. It's that we know the Jesus who teaches us those things and teaches us to find all that knowledge in himself. Now watch this. Jesus just told Thomas that if you know and see Jesus, then you've effectively known and seen the Father. And what does Philip say in the very next verse? I mean, it's like a sitcom. Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. I mean, you almost expect to hear an audience laughing at that question. It's one of those awkward moments in class where someone asks a question that the teacher has just answered. And all the other students hear the question and are like, Dude, did you just wake up? Like, hello? <laughs> As Thomas was seeking a knowledge of God that he didn't know he had by faith in Jesus, so now Philip is seeking a presence of God that he doesn't know he has by faith in Jesus as well. So Jesus answers Philip now in verses 9 through 11. And the awkwardness is not just in the moment of this particular class period, it's This is the last day of class, and you still haven't learned this. Like, class is almost out, man. This is the end of the semester, and Philip is asking questions he should already know the answer to by now. Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you don't know me? Jesus answers Philip's request to see the Father with a statement about Jesus' personal presence with them. You see that? You want to see the Father? Have I been with you this long and you don't know who I am? 
Don't you know who you're looking at yet? Three years, and you're still asking me to show you the Father. Man, that's rich. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you ask me this? You see how Jesus is turning the questions around on his disciples? Thomas had just asked him, how can we know the way? Now Jesus asked Philip and the rest of them, how can you not know? You're asking me, how can you know? And show us. I'm telling you, man, how can you not realize who you have had with you all along for three years? How can we know? How can you not know? How can you say, show us the Father? Come on. He says to them in verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus puts the question in a form that assumes he should believe. He should believe. Do you not believe this? Oh, I know you believe this. You really ought to believe this. You believe this. That's what he's been teaching and proving all along. He's the image of the invisible God. The Father is in Jesus. Jesus is in the Father. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Father and Son are in lockstep. The Father sent the Son. The Son came from the Father. The Son says only what he hears the Father saying Go back and read John 5. He's been saying it to him since then. Father shows the Son all he's doing. The Son only does what he sees the Father doing. Any of this ringing a bell, Jesus says. And Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. This has been the very point Jesus has been at, John and Jesus have both been at pains to make all along. It's how John introduced the whole thing. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God... But the only begotten from the Father's side, Jesus, has made him known. You've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Isn't this why we should be looking at Jesus more and not less? You think you know God? Then prove it by knowing Jesus. Prove it by listening to Jesus' word. That's what Jesus is saying. I don't have to show you the Father. I've shown you myself. I'm the image of the Father. You want to know God? You want to be a spiritual person? Know Jesus Christ and listen to his word. That's how you know the Father. It's the only way you will know him. And even if you're saying, well, I know him by the Spirit. Yes, but the Spirit is the one who glorifies Jesus. He will glorify me, Jesus will say, in just a couple chapters. So when you have fellowship with Jesus, he's the one who welcomes you into his fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. You don't have fellowship with the Spirit or the Father unless you have fellowship with Jesus. Jesus is central. And only Jesus can do this for you because only Jesus is the Son of God. Only Jesus had a human body that he could give up on the cross to die for your sins and to rise from the dead to reconcile you to God so that he could pour out his spirit on you, his spirit that did not take human form. Only Jesus, the Son, took human form. And that's why you can have the spirit and know what the spirit's doing. Because of Jesus. He, Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. Not the spirit. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The proof of all this in verse 10 is that the Father is in both Jesus' words and Jesus' works. Jesus doesn't speak his own word to them. He speaks his Father's word. Jesus doesn't speak independently of the Father. And that is a, that is a remarkable thing. As authoritative as Jesus is, as divine as he is, as all-knowing, all-powerful as he is, as righteous as he is, he speaks nothing that he didn't first hear his Father say. That's how obedient a son he is. That's how dependent he is on his father. I don't speak from myself. 
But the Father who remains in me does his works. Either way, whether you take Jesus at his word or take him at his works, what you are believing is that God the Father is in God the Son. Third, finally, quickly, faith seeks effectiveness in Jesus' service in verses 12 to 14. Faith seeks effectiveness in Jesus' service. What Jesus means here by greater works is not necessarily physical healings or miraculous food provisions or resurrections. Judging by what the apostles actually do and acts and the effects of those things, the greater works are preaching and teaching, disciple-making, conversions, baptisms, missionary endeavors, and church plants. That's what happens in Acts. That's what the gospel does. That's what the Spirit does. That's what the apostles do by the Spirit's power. And they see far more conversions in their day than Jesus saw in his ministry. Jesus says, the reason is that I am going to the Father. So he doesn't tell him now, but John has already told us in chapter 7 why that's significant. The Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So once Jesus is glorified, once he's died, risen, ascended to God's right hand, then and only then does he pour out his Spirit on his church in power. And that's why the apostles are able to do greater works. But Jesus says that those things will happen as answers to the church's prayers. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He even repeats it for emphasis. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And that holds in the book of Acts. What do we find? What do we meet the disciples doing in the upper room? They're praying together. And the whole book of Acts is what follows. They're asking Jesus. And Jesus answers. But these promises are not just for the original disciples. These are for us. John is recording this for the encouragement of the churches. Of course, this is not name it and claim it theology, asking for wealth to spend it on pleasure. It's not asking for things that gratify our sinful flesh, thinly veiled by asking Jesus to be glorified in our vanity or in our wealth or in our power and the satisfaction of our appetites. Well, this is about asking for things that the Father will use to glorify himself in Jesus. Things like multiplying workers for the gospel and worshipers for God. We can ask him to give us clarity and boldness in our evangelism, to give us true and lasting converts from our evangelism and preaching. We can ask him for a growing number of people who want to be baptized into this local church and others like it. We can ask him to convert our children. We can ask him to multiply elders and pastors and evangelists, missionaries, church planters among us. We can ask him to multiply deacons and deaconesses. We can ask him to give us compound interest on the time and energy we spend on preaching and evangelism, disciple-making, gospel hospitality, elder training, serving each other. Now, even if we do limit our prayers to these things, we can still abuse this promise. In his book, No Shortcut to Success, Matt Rhodes warns us that even in conservative churches, denominations, and missions agencies, Evangelism and church planting strategies are being adopted that badly exaggerate numbers and reduce time horizons as if we should be planting churches on the mission field like every nine months. As if the regular gestation period of a local church is nine months from the time that the previous planting church was itself planted. This stuff is out there. Without any missionary actually learning the language, living among the unreached people group, or even teaching them sound doctrine. Now look, doing that kind of stuff, rightly, planting churches, doing evangelism, making disciples, seeing converts in a foreign culture, takes decades of effort especially when you're crossing cultural and linguistic boundaries. I'm not talking about asking God for permission to cut corners or inflate numbers or do ministry in a slipshod way, nor am I, asking, nor am I talking about asking God to work in spite of our own unwillingness to work or risk or plan or strategize or sacrifice. God doesn't bypass our initiative. He uses it. And Matt Rhodes reminds us that when God wanted to convert the Ethiopian eunuch He didn't just leave him on his own with a copy of Isaiah 53. He sent Philip to explain it to him. When God wanted to reach the Gentile Cornelius, he didn't just give him a dream. He sent Peter. 
So we need to plan and obey as well as pray. But if we're not praying, we have very little chance of obeying. And still, I fear we neglect this prayer promise because we've seen it abused elsewhere. We're afraid to apply this. But abuse of a promise does not negate the promise itself. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Charles Spurgeon was right. If there is anything that Jesus would not pray for, then do not dream of praying for it. I don't think Jesus is asking God to give you a Ferrari. I don't think that conversation is happening in heaven. Even so, this promise is why we should be eagerly and optimistically committed to corporate prayer together. After all, this promise is in the second person plural both times. Whatever you all ask. If you all ask anything. There's something about praying together that creates solidarity in our shared dependence on Jesus. Right? Like there's an intimacy that you have when you're praying alone. I get that. We all get it. But when you're praying for something together that we know Jesus wants to do, it unifies us, doesn't it? It makes us feel this sense of solidarity together in our shared dependence on God. And think about it, Christian. Do you really pray as fervently and faithfully as you yourself think you ought to pray about the things that Jesus wants you to be praying for that we just listed all by yourself? Do you really do that all the time? Is that how your quiet times go? God, raise up more missionaries. Raise up more evangelists. Multiply elders and deacons in our congregation. Cause conversions from the preaching of our church. Is that what your quiet time prayer looks like? Right. That's why we gather together on Sunday nights. To keep ourselves accountable to praying like that. I know a local businessman who once told me that he would have given a new hire more money if they had only asked for it. (laughs) They didn't ask, and he didn't give it. I mean, what a shame it would be if that were true of us as a church in our prayer life. James tells us we have not because we ask not, and the promise is the reason he said it. Shouldn't we be asking God more frequently, more fervently, to do more things for Jesus' name among us? More conversions? More Bible reading and discipling relationships, more elders and deacons, more pastoral interns, church planters, missionaries, evangelists, more spiritual maturity among the members who are already here, more holiness and love, sound doctrine, conviction, character, ministry competence, more money in the budget to devote to more gospel projects, more people to do more ministry, more space to fit more people, or maybe we just don't care enough to be that frequent and fervent in those prayers, or maybe we don't believe this promise. Maybe we're just afraid of this promise. But friends, how can we possibly be content to have not if we ask not? Charles Spurgeon is spot on. Listen to what he says. Some churches have no life, no energy, no enterprise for Christ, no ambition for Christ. And do you not wonder at it? Do you, and do you wonder at it when their meetings for prayer are so scantily attended? To strengthen a prayer meeting is as good a, a work as to preach a sermon. And that's from the Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon. I would have you vow that the prayer meeting shall never be given up while you live. And he says, be like a good woman who, when it was decided to close the prayer meeting in a certain village, she declared that it should not be, for she would be there even if no one else was. She was true to her word, and when the next morning someone said to her rather jestingly, did you have a prayer meeting last night? Ah, that we did, she replied. How many were present? For she said, and she said, uh, well, for she said, why, why, said he, uh, I heard that you were all alone. No, she said, I was not, I was the only one visible. But the Father was there, the Son was there, and the Spirit were there. And we were agreed in prayer. And before long, others took shame to themselves at the earnest perseverance of a poor old woman in prayer. And soon there was a revived prayer meeting and a prospering church. Oh, never let us leave off praying unitedly for a blessing. And for me, as for me and my church, we will serve the Lord by maintaining this sacred exercise in full vigor. And I beseech all the other believers to come to the same resolve, or if not, there will be dreary days for the Church of Christ. End quote. That's how a preacher that you admire 
talked about the prayer meeting of his church. And we've been praying recently for God to multiply our number, and look what's already happening. I mean, look around this room. It's fuller than it was three years ago, isn't it? We've asked. He's answering. So let's ask all the more. Let's ask him to fill this building to standing room only in the next two years with people who genuinely want to hear the gospel and be saved and sanctified by it. Let's ask him for conversions and new members. Let's ask him to make some of those people pastoral interns and others elders and deacons and others missionaries and evangelists and church planters. Let's ask God to give us good ideas for how we can spread the gospel here in Elgin. Maybe a summer VBS or backyard Bible clubs or maybe hosting neighborhood cookouts or hosting Do Christians really think this or that about different topics? How about asking him to move us to a bigger building downtown so that we can leave a bilingual church plant here? I mean, praying these things alone, that'd be good. But when we pray these kinds of things together, it knits our hearts together in faith and love and wonder for who Jesus is and how he's already answering our prayers together as we prayed them to him. Gives us as a church a shared relationship with the Lord of asking and receiving. And isn't that what Jesus wants? It is what he wants. It's exactly what he's telling us he wants to give us in this promise. That's how he wants it to work. He wants to prove his faithfulness to answering our requests, not just everybody else's. So let's give him at least something to say yes to. Sure, he might not answer in the way we, respect, we expected or even asked, and he may answer us far beyond our lifetime, like he did John Owen. Owen was an Oxford-trained theologian, failed politician, Puritan pastor in the mid-1600s. Many of us admire him, but he finished out his ministry merging his own 35-member congregation with another congregation of 135 members, pastored by a longtime friend. And even then, the church only grew by 111 members over the last 10 years of John Owen's life. He published a lot, wrote a ton, but his books didn't sell any better than anybody else's books in his own lifetime. And ten years before he died, he lamented in a sermon, who would have thought, in a sermon he sang this, who would have thought that we should have come to an indifferency as to the doctrine of justification? In other words, who would have thought that the churches would be indifferent about a doctrine so close to the gospel as justification? This is at the end of his life. He felt such a sense of ministry failure that just two years before John Owen died, he said in a sermon, again, publicly in a sermon, I have now been very long, though very unprofitable, in the ministration of the word. I am ready to faint and to give over and to beg of the church that they would think of some other person to to conduct them in my room without these disadvantages. (laughs) That's John Owen. He wrote Mortification of Sin. Some of you just read it. And at the end of his life, he's like, would you just hire somebody else? Because I feel like I'm failing you. He preached that two years before he died. He could never have known that his writings would be used in our last 70 years to help create an international resurgence of interest in a doctrine of God that magnifies his triune holiness and majesty and love. God did say yes to Owen's prayers. It just took 450 years for him to do it. As Owen grew older and his body grew weaker, he looked forward to joining Jesus in the place he's preparing for us. He said to his congregation, when all this state and frame of things shall vanish and we prove to have an utter unconcernment in things below, when the curtain shall be turned aside and we shall look into another world, the soul's relief lies in God's immutability that we shall find him the same to us in death as he was in life and much more. That's the promise. I'm preparing a place for you. Two days before he died, still disappointed, he retained his hope of seeing Jesus and encouraged that hope in others. He said, I am going to him whom my soul hath loved, or rather who hath loved me with an everlasting love. I'm leaving the ship of the church in a storm. But whilst the great pilot is in it, the loss of a poor under rower will not be considerable. Live and pray and hope and wait patiently and do not despair, he said. That is faith, seeking hope and knowledge in Jesus and trusting him for the fruit, even when none seems visible two days before he dies. So let's not despair. May we live and pray and hope and wait 
patiently. Let's let our faith seek hope in Jesus, knowledge in Jesus, and fruitfulness from Jesus, because his promise remains, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray again. Oh, Lord, forgive us for our unbelief, our hopelessness, our despair, and our prayerlessness in view of such great promises. And may we take hold of these promises afresh and pray them back to you. For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen.